Thank you, Mo. I was hoping that uh, whoever was going to read scripture this morning would read it with a little bit of bumph. And, and you did just that. Thank you so much. Uh, children, ages three to five, uh, you are uh, invited uh, to join the leaders at the back. And uh, we're going to start Children's Church again. I would love to volunteer there. I'm guessing that I won't be able to be at two places at once. So, But we're really happy to be able to have uh, Children's Church again. <clears throat> Jaws dropped in the courtroom as the judge's gavel hit its mark, and the low hum, garbled whispers, nauseous stomach-twisting nerves and uncertainty can be heard, felt, even tasted in the air. The deliberation was long, agonizingly so. The cited crimes heinous, reprehensible, filthy, yet there was a defense precedence for innocence until proven guilty. Arguably, there was a strong case for the defense. Not all crimes are seen, understood equally, carry as much weight amongst peers, and can be construed as less cut and dried than others. Again, the gavel is unleashed, and an agitated hush permeates the air. Eyes dart to and fro, hearts palpitate, feet shuffle, ready to flee or collapse in relief. We find the defendant guilty. Some gasp, covering their faces in despair. Others smirk. More flee the courtroom, scattered to the winds to outrun their own plague of guilt. Shock. Shock? Really? It seems questionable, guilt, guilt by omission, guilt by admission, accused guilt, and actually being found guilty all land on the spectrum of guilt at different places. Odd, guilt is guilt, whether seen, heard, accused, confronted, ignored, or rationalized. Yet we are shocked, we rally, We consult. We throw that Hail Mary and somehow hope. Our reputation, our appearance, our resources can somehow save a sinking ship. Guilt is guilt. It doesn't matter how it's disguised, who sees, where the deed was done, who it affects, or however else you want to spin it. Guilt is guilt. Then, they will know that I am the Lord. That was riveting. Stories can have an incredible power to captivate, convict, and change. And and you actually have to put yourself into the story You have to identify with some of the characters. You have to allow it to grip you. The Bible, a collection of some 66 books, is one grand story. 
made up of many, many smaller stories. But collectively, they demonstrate God's interaction with humanity and his efforts to restore what was lost. <clears throat> well, every uh, good story has a number of components. Characters, obviously. A setting. A plot or sequence of events. A conflict. A resolution. And a theme or an application or moral of the story. Stories are meant for us to identify with them. And this morning, I, I'm really hoping that you will identify with something in this story and that you will leave with something in your mind that will grip you and cause you to do introspection and think about it. We identify with the characters in the story. And in this way, the story challenges us. It encourages us and it convicts us. In the coming weeks, we want to look at story in Scripture and we want to learn to better understand the stories, but most of all, we want to see Jesus more clearly. And we want to allow His voice to speak to us through the story of Scripture. Yes, the greatest example of a storyteller is surely Jesus. He taught complex truths using simple, memorable parables, epigram, which is a funny word. It means witty, ingenious, pointed sayings like, he who wishes to save his life must lose it, etc. He used question and answer, object lessons, and even humor. Uh, I've read the book, uh, The Humor of Christ by Elton Trueblood. It's probably about 80 years old. I wish somebody would rewrite a modernized version of it. But he looks at Jesus' use of humor, uh, and it's fascinating. Well, Jody just read for us a story that she wrote as an introduction to the book of Ezekiel. A gripping story about guilt. And our parable today, in chapter 15 of Luke, has another gripping story. And actually, it's a multiple stories that escalate. Uh, Jody's introduction is a great introduction to this story. <clears throat> because it's another story about guilt. The obvious guilt and the not-so-obvious and the attitudes that surround it. As I said, our story is found in Luke 15, the third and final uh, of three stories told in succession. And this is also important. Uh, you see, it's a response. If you look at verse 1 and 2 uh, of chapter 15, it's a response to the Pharisees and teachers of the law complaining about Jesus spending time with Republican, publicans, Republicans, <laughs> Publicans and sinners. I can't even hear myself this morning. The only thing I can hear is my heart beating in my head. I'm that congested. So if I make a couple more mistakes, you'll, you'll notice them. I won't. Uh, but there's, there's this escalation in these stories because Jesus wants to address the attitude of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They are self-righteous. And, and our text juxtaposes, you're all familiar with that word already, the tax collectors and sinners with the attitudes of Jesus and this Father in our story. It's a stark, stark contrast indeed. It also has a good story that parallels it in Matthew. And Matthew's parable, I think in chapter 21 to 23, he's, he's, Jesus tells a series of parables about 
the two sons, the tenants, and then the wedding feast. And, and all of them basically point to the religious leaders saying, you guys were in charge of God's house, you've blown it, and it's going to be taken away from you. And they understood because they wanted to kill him after that. While each of these three stories escalates, as it describes increasing value, a sheep, then a coin, and then a son. And then also decreasing numbers, one out of a hundred sheep, one out of ten coins, and one out of two sons. I've called it prodigal sons, or the prodigals, and I'll let you know in a minute why. Our story has three characters, the father, the younger son, and the older brother. And the story kind of unfolds as rebellion, ruin, repentance, restoration, and rejoicing. You notice all the R's. Okay, maybe you didn't. The setting, of course, is a father and his two sons, with comparison between the abundance of the home and the destitution that the younger son experienced in the world after he had squandered it all. It also has to do with the rebellion and lostness of the younger son, his journey home, and the loving forgiveness of his father, and then also the self-righteous anger of his older brother. The plot, the younger brother asked for his share of the inheritance, which is actually a shameful act that is synonymous with saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, I only want your money. That's basically how harsh that was. And yet, the older brother, was his attitude actually all that different? As Mo read the text for us this morning. Well, let's look at this younger brother. (coughs) He leaves leaves home with his part of the inheritance, and he hammers through these resources, spending it all on wild living. And then having spent it all, in the face of a famine, he is brought to a place of need. And he ends up working as a swine-herding slave for a Gentile farmer. I don't know if you can get lower than that, at least in a Jewish mindset. He's feeding pigs. And this was despised by Jews. Having hit the bottom, yes, literally having hit the bottom, he comes to his senses. Not necessarily out of true repentance, but out of a desire for self-preservation. I'm starving here. And yes, he does say, I've sinned against heaven and you to his father. So there might be some repentance there. He decides to go back to his father in hopes of being accepted as a hired servant, rather than expecting to be restored as a son. But what about this father? As he is returning, while the son is a long way off, his father sees him and is filled with compassion. He obviously had gone out and looked out into the horizon, hoping day after day that this son would return. In self-humiliation, he runs to him. Again, culturally, to lift your robes and run for a father was disgraceful. But he doesn't care. He runs, he runs to his son, he hugs him and kisses him, and surely his son was filthy, and the father doesn't care. This is treatment for a son, a forgiven son, not a servant. And the father then calls for the best robe, a ring and sandals for his feet. And by the way, servants went barefoot in those days, so getting sandals meant you're not a servant, you're a son. 
Finally, a fatted calf is prepared for a feast of celebration. <clears throat> well, what about the older brother? As the story goes, he's returning from the field. He's been working. He's the dutiful son. He's working in the field. He hears music and dancing, and he's informed by a servant of his younger brother's return as, as the reason for celebration. The older brother's response is anger and refusing to go in. Again, the father goes out. He's always going out. Our heavenly father is always going out. He goes out this time to the older son to plead with him to join them. And notice the older brother's response. All these years I have been slaving for you. Hmm. Slaving. That's how he understood his involvement with his father. I've never disobeyed your orders. Look how obedient and how righteous I am. I've never disobeyed your orders. This is all self-righteous, sanctimonious attitude. You never gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. You never gave me. And then finally, you celebrate when your son returns after living it up. And he actually says, spending your inheritance with prostitutes, which of course wasn't even in the text. He is, con it's conjecture. He's thinking about what his younger brother has done. Well, there's a conflict here. <clears throat> it appears that the conflict we thought was focused on the younger brother is actually more acute with the older brother. The first conflict, the lostness of the younger brother, who was dead but is now alive, is resolved as he is forgiven and restored. But the story ends without telling us about the outcome of the conflict with the older brother. I wonder, does Jesus leave it hanging here intentionally? Is this an ongoing invitation to the Pharisees and to us to repent? This morning you'll notice I put three pairs of shoes here in front. And if uh, they're, you know, they smell, I can't smell right now, but if they smell, they belong to my son. Well, they, they represent the three characters in our story. And, and my question to you this morning is, which shoes are you walking in? The shiny shoes representing the loving, forgiving Heavenly Father? Uh, the work boots representing the older son who is faithfully working in the field but who seems to not have had a good relationship with his father? Or the runners of the younger son who ran away from home? What do you think? What are the attitudes portrayed by each and which attitude are you locked into? Which character do you identify with the most? The older brother? Younger brother? And, and maybe it's possible that you're still running. Maybe like the younger brother, you're still running. You have not come to grips with the love of the Heavenly Father. Or maybe like the older brother, you're still locked in some self-righteous, I'm better and judgmental attitude toward everyone else. <clears throat> What does this look like in the context of the church? Look around. 
We're a collection of all kinds. We're different. We have different experiences. We have different gifts and abilities. We have different baggage. Maybe struggling with different sins or addictions. We're different. Are we like the older brother in terms of the way we respond to each other? Or are we like our Heavenly Father? The younger son's sins were external and obvious. It works perfect with a Mennonite point of view. I'm Mennonite, so I can say that. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance. Perfect. All the external stuff. The older brother's sins were internal and less obvious. Sins of the heart, sins of self-righteousness, lack of forgiveness and selfishness. Boy, that's hard to weed out. That's hard to weed out. Because it crops up. It catches you. The younger son, he recognized, he repented, and he received his father's forgiveness. And he was restored. There's a happy ending to that story. And in many ways, all of us are like the younger son. Each of us, in our own way, has gone astray. Each of us needed to be redeemed and forgiven and restored. We're all like the younger son in that sense. The problem is when we're locked into being like the older son. The older brother's anger at love and forgiveness blinded him to his own need for love and forgiveness as well. His response includes sharp criticism of both his father and his brother, whom he appeared to disown because he says to his father, your son, instead of my brother. It seems rather obvious that he didn't seem to have a relationship with either of them. In the end, which of the two brothers was truly lost? Hmm? Which of the two brothers was truly lost? And so if I identify with that older one and I find that I have an unforgiving, judgmental attitude, I'm identifying with the one that I think is actually the point of the story. Because Jesus is telling this story, he's leading up to it with the other two parables, and then he hammers it home because he's telling the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you legalistic, sanctimonious people. You don't have God's heart. And so I have to watch that. I don't have that attitude. The text warns us through the older brother that activity for God by itself or proximity to him is not the same as knowing him through a relationship. Grounded in a conscious, humbling turning to him. Yes, the attitude of God is at the center of the parable. It would be nice to focus our attention on the Father. Obviously, a marvelous depiction of our Heavenly Father's faithful love and forgiveness. Yes, that is central, because without it, there is no restoration, no redemption, no forgiveness. But this third story, this pharisaical attitude of being unloving and unforgiving, <clears throat> this third story about the lost and found specifically targets and rebukes the Pharisees and the pharisaical attitude that we too must identify and root out. Do we celebrate or become angry at the forgiveness of another? Are we jealous of their exploits, secretly longing the same pleasures and wild living, just didn't have the nerve? 
Or do we self-righteously judge that they deserve the consequences of their choices and therefore refuse to respond with love and forgiveness? I have to admit that I, I ha here's where I sometimes have to struggle because when somebody is wanting me to cover the consequences of the bad choices they've made, internally I balk. And yet I'm called to love. What does that look like? I'm also called to forgive. What does that look like? Do we have the heart of love and forgiveness portrayed by our Heavenly Father? And just in case, you're not hearing me say that sin is irrelevant. You're not hearing me say that God doesn't take sin seriously. That's not what I'm saying at all. <clears throat> Are we generous and forgiving with each other? With those outside of the family of faith as well? The forgiving love of God should motivate us to forgive and love others as well. There's that uncomfortable part of the Lord's Prayer that says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Well, the reverse of that is, you have permission not to forgive me if I'm not forgiving. Ouch. And i got to tell you, there's not anything that you can do to me that's worse than my sin having nailed Jesus to the cross. So I should be able to forgive you if I've understood the seriousness of my own sin. Yes, the attitude of the older son is very understandable. Indeed, I think the listener to the parable is supposed to, to feel the same sense of injustice that the older son feels. Of course, highlighting the distinction between our self-centeredness and God's grace. <clears throat> The point is that God is a gracious Father, and if one is truly to be His child, one should adopt His attitude toward repentance. Everyone in Luke 15 experienced joy. The shepherd at finding his sheep, the woman at finding her coin, the father and friends at this lost son come, coming home, except the older son and the Pharisees. What about you? What about me? And yes, Jesus again uses the banquet motif to symbolize the coming kingdom where we will fellowship, where sinners are welcomed into God's kingdom and into fellowship with Him. So I'll ask the question again this morning. Which shoes are you wearing? What's your attitude? We can be out of fellowship with God through open rebellion, or by hidden superiority and jealousy. Which son represents you? Which shoes are you walking in? God is a gracious Father, and if we are truly His children, we should adopt His attitude toward repentance. There's an interesting twist in this parable toward the end. A subtle reversal. The son that was out of the house is now in. And the son that was in the house is now outside. Attitudes. Attitudes change everything. We misc risking the joy of relationship with God when we turn him into a scorekeeper. And of course, scorekeeping never works. It has been said that you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. 
Hmm. When we lack a loving, forgiving attitude, our image of God is similar to an uptight, judgmental perfectionist rather than a loving, forgiving Heavenly Father. Well, this morning, as we sit here, maybe there's someone in your life that you're struggling to forgive. I, I won't meet you at the back and ask you about it. Uh, but maybe there's somebody that you're struggling to forgive. And, and by the way, that ends up being an anchor that you're dragging through life because it ends up hurting you almost more than the person you're not forgiving. You're dragging that thing around and, and you need to be set free from that. Forgive. I, and I know with some things it takes some time, but work toward that. It's important. Yes, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it takes time. But when we, when we focus on the love and forgiveness we've received from the Father, we should be able to, in time, forgive and love others. The debt we owe is greater than the debt owed us. Let's pray, and then I'm going to ask Andrew and Jody to come up, and we'll see if there are some questions. And maybe, ushers, if you have some mics uh, to answer questions from the floor as well. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, we are first of all grateful this morning for your gift of forgiveness and adoption as sons. And we thank you that we did not earn it. It was given to us as a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And at the same time this morning, we acknowledge that sometimes the attitudes of the older brother plague us. Sometimes we sink into legalistic, judgmental, non-forgiving attitudes, self-righteous attitudes. So Lord, we ask that uh, this morning as we uh, think about this parable and what Jesus wanted to say to us through it, may we be moved to a greater embracing of the attitude that you portray as your children. And by the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Got one question so far. Uh, the father ran to his son before there was any repentance offered. How many times do we tend to believe that Jesus only moves toward us when we fully repent? Does that understanding change our picture of mission and of salvation? I can't hear, so I didn't even hear the question. I'm, I'm kidding. Um. I had a thought and then I laughed and lost it. <laughs> well, I, I find that most of the miracles that Jesus did required at least an ounce of faith. Yeah. You know, go show yourself to the priest uh, or, or put mud on your eyes and go wash in the river or like there is some, at least a little bit of faith required yeah. because he never obligates and because we need that little bit of faith to be able to grow in our faith. <clears throat> What's the, what's the phrase that says, I mean, we all, we all know that the Lord pursues us. Right. Um, and if we know nothing, somehow the Spirit draws us in so that we can come before the Son. So he is always pursuing us. 
I wanted to read The Hound of Heaven, but it's such old English that I knew that nobody would understand, so I left it out. But it's an amazing story, The Hound of Heaven, about God's pursuit. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there's a total, like, there's a world that exists where, where, uh, yeah, where, um, the son is just passing by. Like, he's not actually coming to repent. He's just passing by his father's house to look at it. And the father comes out and he goes, no, 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 I'm still good. I'm still on my own and keeps going. Like, obviously, that didn't happen. But the whole point being, the father ran to the son before there was any repentance offered. Like, while the son, there's no guarantee that the son was there to ask for forgiveness, but the father runs to him anyway. Um, yeah. I think just that. But this might be a very odd tie-in but ask seek knock like those who open the door and those who didn't open the door that's the same concept of mm. the lord pursuing us and so this father ran to the son who had not knocked yet yeah but yeah i'm gonna go over this way <laughs> yeah my mic is picking up on oh, I see. yeah any any comments or questions from from the from the congregation there's an usher with a mic This one's just a very, turn the question back on you, Ernie. It's just, whose shoes are you in? That's the text. <laughs> whose shoes am I in? I think it, maybe it's addressed to all of us. But. Yeah, I asked that question if it's directed to me. I, don't, I think um, it's more in general. I, I've, I've, worn, I've worn the shoes of the younger brother, but I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I've come to my senses and accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've repented. Mm. Uh, I, I have to work at making sure that I don't put those other shoes on. And there are moments where I find myself struggling to not put those on. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a forever rotation because standing up here, I may seem like I'm wearing a little bit shinier shoes. But when I go home, if I scream at my kids or, or he's smiling. Warm husband, um, right? Right? Like it's a forever rotation, and then we, and then we somehow slip into the pride of the older brother, and think that well, we do all the right things, we do all the right things. Yeah, totally. But my heart is messed up. Right. And I think that's to the weight of the, not to just tie it all back in, but the pow- the power of story yep. is that. Like, you can read this, this account of these two brothers, and it's metaphorical and whatnot, but you look at it and you go, oh, right, like, I, I recognize my own tendencies in, frankly, both of them, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. to either run or to prop yourself up and go, well, that's ridiculous that this person behaved that way. I, you know, and the point that you made of, like, I've, he's been there this whole time, and yet he's further away than he's ever been, right? Like... He's never been further than he is at the end, even though he's never left. Yeah. Like, well, and, and justification is instant when I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Sanctification is a process yeah. that doesn't end until I pass on to the, new, the other life. The problem with the Pharisees was that they were operating on the premise that they could live righteously, they could earn heaven based on merit. Yeah. And, G- and, and actually, if one single human being could actually earn heaven based on merit, then the death of Christ on the cross is unnecessary. Okay? That's, that's what we're dealing with. So, so all of our attempts to gain merit on our own 
is actually kind of dissing the sacrifice on the cross. Um, so we, we, have to, we have to keep coming to him, recognizing that we are saved because of what he's done, and then receive it with gratitude and, and, um, and loving others as well. Totally. And there is still hope for the older son, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, and the father's yep. in the process of kind of correcting him at the end, where he goes, this son of yours, right? And the language is all, I'm not connected to him. It's this son of yours. And the father responds with, your brother is bad. Like he's already kind of trying to shift that perspective again. I hate stories that get left hanging. It's like, the, you know, you see five episodes and it ends right at the climax and mm-hmm. you force you to watch the next episode, right? Yeah. Well, this is one of those. If I would have been a disciple, I would have gone to Jesus after and said, soul, soul, did he, did he fix yeah, it? Like, yeah. he leaves it hanging. And I, and I think that's intentional. Totally. It doesn't always turn out good. Mm. And it's also ambiguous because it's about us. Yeah. And our, our story isn't finished yet either. Yeah. And our heart. Yeah. Our heart. You, nobody can actually see anybody's heart and the reasons they do the things that they do. I may choose to outwardly make the right choice, but if I'm longingly looking at, at well, that would have been so much more fun or cool mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, that's my heart is still not right. Mm-hmm. This is kind of what you were saying before, but I think it's possible to wear all three pairs of shoes in the same day mm-hmm. or even within the same hour. Yeah. How important it is to connect with Jesus daily so our hearts mm-hmm. and minds are in the place where God wants us to be. That's a good final comment. Thank you, both of you. Uh, We'll invite the praise band to come up and we'll do some more singing. Oh, I'm sorry. There's another one here. It's okay. I I didn't see you. Honestly, it's okay. Because this is a bit of a can of worms. Um, So, Jody, this question's for you. Um, (laughs) So this passage is about two sons. There's no mention of women in this passage. There's no mention of daughters in this passage. Um, And you alluded to this already, Ernie, about you know, the privilege of the first son and the second son and so on, uh, and the lack of privilege in that culture of any woman. So I'm just curious as to the women in our congregation now, what is this, what does this parable talk to you about? Maybe it's exactly the same thing as us men, but is there something different there? That is a can <laughs> of stinky worms. <laughs> Are you going to say that? I'm not going to help you. <laughs> that's, that's a bad look. Okay, so this, this might be severely controversial, and you may lock the doors on me the next time I try and enter, but I don't look at it as a gender thing because I don't... I, well, I don't want to put words in my child's mouth, but I feel like I have maybe a different set of wisdom than my husband has to offer him, and my acceptance of my children would not be any different than my husband's acceptance of his children. And if the Lord isn't speaking through his word to all of his children as he says he is, then it's not true. And he, he repeatedly um, raises up the women that surround him, the woman at the well, the woman with the expensive perfume, the woman who bleeds, the woman who just... Um, I was reading in Matthew this morning and the woman asked him repeatedly and repeatedly 
like, please heal my child, please heal my child. And the disciples were like, let's keep going. So uh, if you want to draw a line between men and women, who's more persistent? The disciples who say, let's keep going, or the mother who's pleading for her child's salvation. Jesus turns and sees the mother. But please don't lock the doors. <laughs> now, Jesus broke stereotypes by giving, uh, giving status to women and children. He let the children come to him. Uh, uh, yeah, he broke so many of the stereotypes. And, and he perfectly portrayed that every single human being is an image bearer made in the image of God and has worth because of it. So you and I are brothers and sisters of every other single human being on earth in a general sense. We are brothers and sisters with those of the faith in a special sense. But we need to treat everybody like an image bearer. Yeah. Okay. I have, Thank you. I have a, a question. A question. Um, with the work that I'm in and uh, people who work with me, and some of them have different, uh, some of them have different beliefs than, than I do. And I had one incident this week. And I was wondering uh, how to uh, preach the word of God to the people that have different beliefs to? I, I forgot who said it. I'm going to quote somebody without remembering who it is. But he said this. Preach all of the time and sometimes use words. Meaning that our lives, our lives speak volume. The way we carry ourselves, the way we speak, the way we behave, the attitudes we portray, those are all speaking loudly. And, and then Peter follows it up and said, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. So when someone sees that you're different and then starts to ask, that's then your opportunity to explain. Thank you. We're good? Okay. Thank you.